The Old Testament reading is taken from Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The, thresh, the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Uh, thank you for that, Lorian. Uh, good morning. Uh, for those who don't know you, my name's uh, Tom Smith. I'm a member of the congregation here at St. Joseph's. We're going to look this morning at the next instalment uh, looking at the book of Joel, and we're in that volume four of the series. This passage is an amazing description of what happens when God's people acknowledge him and in sincere and earnest repentance return to him. Before we start, let me pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would be with us this morning Help me speak clearly and accurately and help us all understand what you're saying to us and live changed lives as a result. Amen. So before we start this section, let's recap the previous three talks. So at the beginning of this month, Ben introduced us to the devastation caused by locusts, particularly that faced by the nation of Israel, with pictures of wave after wave after wave of locusts laying complete waste to the land with nothing growing, the harvest completely dead. And in that time of devastation, the message to God to his people is threefold. Listen up. We should hear the word of the Lord in this time of catastrophe. Wake up, lament, confess sin and repent, and call out, acknowledge that the Lord is near. Then in the second part of the series, Jonathan explained to us from the beginning of chapter 2 about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, it is near. So the locust devastation was both a judgment on the people of Israel, but also a reminder of God's holy standards, where the seriousness of sin and rebellion against God is laid out. As Jonathan reminded us, this is serious. The wages of sin is death, and that we needed to heed the warning provided to Joel. 
So the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. That God speaks powerfully, that he acts in righteous judgment and that his judgment is coming soon. And when it comes, it will be awesome. And like the locust storm will be irresistible and terrible. In responding to that message, we should sound the alarm. We should tremble at his word and face up to the question of who could endure in the day of the Lord. And then last week, Ben helpfully answered that question for us of how we can endure that coming judgment. We need to return to the Lord in sincerity. Our hearts need to change. And if we are sincere in our repentance, we can trust the very nature of God, that he is gracious and merciful, and that he will forgive us. The message of Joel is we need to treat this urgently. We need to call upon the Lord and encourage others to return to God as soon as possible. So this week, we turn to results of that true and sincere repentance. Unspoken between the end of verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18, our passage this morning, the people do return to God. They rend their hearts. They acknowledge their guilt and repent of their actions. And the results of God's restoration are breathtaking. Now, I'm not sure how deeply you've thought about just how truly strange that offer from God to those who truly repent is. It's against our human nature, where the biblical words of an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth, are taken out of context as justification for endless violence and hateful words. And it jars with our natural sinful consciousness. It might help if I give an example. When I was a younger man back in Northern Ireland, we used to have these things called schisms. They grew out of the Scripture Union movement and generally were held in nice resorts with a beach for two weeks during the summer holidays. My mum enjoyed them as a chance to have her three children occupied for two weeks during the summer, bring a respite from her from no doubt challenging experiences of bringing us up alone while working full-time as a teacher. During one of those uh, mission events that in answer to a simple question, do you know Jesus, spoken to me by an uncle called Noel, outside the amusement arcades in Newcastle, County Down, that I turned decisively to follow Jesus. And then as an older teenager, I volunteered as a leader of these missions. It was during one of them, not unfortunately in one of Northern Ireland's many brilliant beach resorts, but in fact in a housing estate in the southeast of Belfast, that just how jarring that strange offer of forgiveness could be first struck me. In our training, the overall leader, a man, I guess probably about the age I am now, talked in a very serious and deliberate way about sexual sin, along with warnings about wallowing in lust. He highlighted the importance of being in a lifelong commitment of marriage before having sex. So far, so good. But then he went on to say that sexual sin was so serious that there was little possibility of being able to turn back to God from it. Even as a naive and uneducated teenager, that jarred with my understanding of the gospel. But as the group I was leading was between seven and nine years old, it didn't really come up as an issue. It was on the last day of the mission where the painful truth of that man's turmoil came out. That man, so clear but wrong in his doctrine, had been living a lie himself. 
He was involved in an affair with another woman and had been found out. He was leaving his wife of many years to set up home with his new partner. It was messy and very painful, but I think I got a glimpse of the inner turmoil he was facing. His sinful nature and actions jarring with his head knowledge and experience, understanding of God's grace. Unfortunately for him at that time, he was unwilling to turn back to God. He continued in his affair deliberately and repeatedly. He was unable to cope with the concept of God's free gift of forgiveness to all who truly repent. He was perfectly happy with the wages of sin being death, but he couldn't cope with the next part of the passage that says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his depths of despair, he couldn't see any way back for himself or anyone else in the same situation. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Maybe you do so right now, or maybe you have in the past, that you've done so things so badly wrong as a Christian, you don't see how the Lord could possibly keep accepting you and loving you as before. Or your failures leave you feeling that God should just give up on you for good. Or maybe you're more like me I was as a younger man, constantly repeating a prayer of commitment, seeking out new spiritual experiences, because I had little assurance of my salvation and an incomplete understanding of the grace of God. Well, if and when we feel like we're trapped in a cycle of unforgivable sin or in a constant cycle of doubt about how God could ever accept us, this morning's passage should help. It's about assurance for returning sinners who truly repent. Originally, Joel was speaking to those who professed to be God's people, but who needed to turn back to him, having sinned. That's the story of our lives as well, isn't it? If we're Christians, because we profess to be the Lord Jesus' people, we, but we continually need to turn back to him, having sinned. And somehow, because we already know Jesus, our sin is more offensive and inexcusable than have someone who doesn't know him at all. Which means that what Joel says here to assure God's people that they can be forgiven and accepted also applies to us as well as those who have never turned to God at all. Maybe you. God's people were wondering if God would forgive and accept them. And Joel says, yes, he will. And because that can be so hard to accept... Indeed, Paul calls it the offense of the cross in his letter to the Galatians. Here in Joel, we get a glimpse into the very nature of God. Two reasons why God can accept repentant sinners. The first of this is God's jealousy. Let me read from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then in Joel, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, Joel told them what to pray as they returned. Say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Do you see what that prayer is doing? It's appealing to God's sense of honor. It's saying, Lord, please spare us more of this locust judgment and restore us. 
and do that for your sake. Do that so people around us won't say, well, where is their God? He doesn't seem to be blessing them at all or even really there. After all, look at the state they're in. Their land lies in ruin. So Joel was saying, appeal to the Lord's sense of honor because his honor is bound up with you as his people. Let's now read into this week's passage, Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So again, we've seen between Joel 2, 17 and verse 18, Joel assumes the people have returned and prayed as he said. And now from Joel 2, 18, he assures them of how the Lord will answer. And as the prophets of old sometimes did, he put some of it in the past sense as, look, it's as good as done. You can be sure that God will do this. Joel 2.18, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And if you don't like the idea of the Lord being jealous, remember there's right jealousy as wrong as wrong. So wrong jealousy is wanting to have someone that's not rightfully ours. Someone else's looks, talents, girlfriend, boyfriend, kitchen, car, house. Whereas right jealousy is wanting to have something that is ours. To see it going nowhere else like the love of a spouse or a loving parent wanting to see their child thrive. And the one true creator God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, is rightly jealous for his honor. He should be honored as God by everyone on this planet because he made us and we owe him everything. In a sense, the Lord has risked his honor in the eyes of the world by bringing this disciplinary judgment on them. Because with the land devastated by locusts, it didn't look like he was doing much of a job of being their God. But now he'd returned to them and the discipline was no longer needed. He could bless them again. And not only for their good, but at the same time for his honor. So Joel 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make your approach among the nations. I will remove the northerner from you, that's talking about the locusts as an enemy from the north, and drive him, the locusts, into a parched and desolate land, the locust vanguard into the eastern sea, rearguard into the western sea, and the stench and foul smell of those decaying locusts will rise. So the first reason that, God, Joel, that Joel gives to assure God's that God will forgive them and accept them is God's jealousy for his own honor. If you think about that man I mentioned earlier who was so struck in his lust and double life that he thought there was no way God could accept him and was going around spreading that message like the false prophets of old. But of course, God doesn't give up on his people because that would dishonor him. That would go back on the commitment he's made to us. So following this truth through into the New Testament, the Lord Jesus himself said in John chapter, two, John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father comes to me, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, I will never give up on them. Their sin will not get rid of me. Instead, I will stay in their lives to get rid of their sin and change them in a way that brings me honor. If God were to give up on us in our failure, it wouldn't bring him honor. It would look like he'd been defeated by sin. Whereas to keep forgiving us and changing us does bring him honor because it shows he's bigger than our sin and can deal with it. 
So that's the first reason Joel gives to assure God's people that God will forgive and accept them. It's jealousy for his own honor. The second reason is about his love. God's all-forgiving, committed love. Last week we saw how Joel told God's people to appeal to that as well. In Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Return to God, Lord your God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So gracious and merciful is the all-forgiving part. There's nothing he can't forgive if we turn to him. And steadfast in the committed love. That steadfast love, because he's able to forgive all sin. He can commit to us and never give up loving us. So again, look on to this week's passage in verses 21-22. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. So Joel was saying, fear not to the lands and the animals which have been hit by locusts. But he's really addressing God's people, isn't he? Their fear that the locust pig wasn't just a disciplinary judgment, but a final one. Their fear that instead of it being God's wake-up call to return to him, it was God saying, that's it. I give up on you. And through Joel, God assured them that those fears were false. Ultimately, it's only in the New Testament that answers the question, how on earth can God forgive us, spare us that final judgment we so deserve so that we can live instead in his love, including the discipline that's part of it? And the answer is the cross, where Jesus, his son, took the final judgment we deserve, the rejection we deserve, so that if we trust in him, we will never face the death of that final judgment. So just looking back to the, re the earlier reading in 1 John chapter 1, verses, particularly verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I want to be clear that there may well be consequences for sinful and rebellious behavior. The example I used earlier, that man lost his marriage, damaged relationships with his grown-up children, obviously had to step down as a Christian leader, and sadly, because he continued to refuse to repent, was required to leave the church he'd been part of for many years. Nothing like as stark. We may experience God's discipline in the form of serious consequences for some of our sins. It may feel like we're stuck without hope or in despair. But in times like that, and as I look back on times like that in my own life, we can remember the cross and be assured that God has never stopped loving us at any point. Despite our mess-ups, our unbelief and sometimes deliberate sin, God has never stopped loving us. And the comfort that flows from Jesus' death for our sins is that whoever we are, Christian believers or not yet, and whatever we've done from walking away to Jesus to never having come to Jesus in the first place, he can forgive us and accept us. And then there's a lovely glimpse of the joy that brings in verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he's given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. So as well as locusts, it had also been drought. 
and in the land of Israel, drought was a serious issue. Back in Deuteronomy, the Lord had said he would use both locusts and drought as disciplinary judgments if Israel turned away from him. And they had, and he had. But now as Rommel is removing the locusts, God was restoring rain. And the two words at the end of Joel, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, really bring home what God's grace, his all-forgiving love, does. He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. So the restored rain was to show them that he was going to treat them as he had before, before they turned away from him. In fact, as if they'd never turned away at all. And that's what grace does. It restores us to relationship with God as before, as if we'd never sinned. So in verses 24 and 25, the threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the, le- the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. And then in Joel chapter 2, verse 26, we see the one result that God intended from all of this, which is thankfulness. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people will never again be put to shame. So God's people in Joel's day had grown up familiar with God and the Bible. That familiarity had bred contempt. It wasn't amazing to them that he forgave them and accepted them and blessed them with everything he had. They took that for granted. That was God's job, wasn't it? Regardless of how they related to him. And so God let them taste life with his blessing withdrawn and the fear that there was no way back. And then he showed them his grace again. Maybe he's taking you along that same path so you don't take him for granted either. Before all this, they didn't really believe there was no one else worthy for for honor. They were maybe still thinking, maybe following other gods, goals is better, or at least as good. And so he let them taste that it wasn't, and then brought them back to make them not just thankful, but wholehearted love and adoration. That's where the Lord wanted to get people in Joel's day. That's where he wants to get us too. And we have so much more certainty than those in Joel's day. We have the plain and clear example of how much God loves us. Not only did he send his son to earth, but was also prepared for his son to take the punishment that we deserved, our locust devastation. And the famous words on John's gospel remind us of just how great that love is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And that love was so all-encompassing It led to the death of his only son on a cross, taking our punishment and just desserts and rejection from a loving father as Jesus became sin from us. So friends, let me be clear. The free gift of salvation 
of restoration from life marred in sin and rebellion and an assurance of being right with God doesn't depend on us being good enough or clever or talented or even likable. In fact, it doesn't depend on us at all. It depends entirely on the nature of God, the very essence of who he is. What we have to do is to accept that free gift, to believe in him. If you're interested in that, you could speak to any of the church staff, maybe the people you came with, with me, or pick up some of the helpful leaflets uh, dotted around church. I meant to take them up with me, but I'll show them later. They're just in front of Ben. Uh, There's a couple of them, Speak Life uh, and uh, Why God. Really helpful just to give those basic impacts of what a Christian is. It won't be easy or plain sailing, and repentance is hard work and usually painful. But in my experience, and in the words of the Bible, we see that it is definitely worth it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in your grace, as you promised, you would never give up on us. And we pray that we would never get over your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.